Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we will be talking with Josh Schifferson about his new book, Rising Titans, Falling Giants, How Great Powers Exploit Power Shifts. Josh is Assistant Professor of International Relations at the Pardee School of Boston University, where his research focuses on U.S. foreign policy, grand strategy, and international security. Previously, he served as assistant professor at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M. He has published in International Security, Foreign Affairs, The Washington Quarterly, and other venues. We chatted with Josh about his new book and the recent roundtable discussion on his book at the 2018 APSA Annual Meeting in Boston. Hello, Josh. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Great. Thank you for having me. Well, we're very excited about your new book, Rising Titans, Falling Giants. Uh, It's officially out in uh, just a few days, September 15th. And uh, you actually were just at uh, the APSA uh, annual meeting and there was a whole round table on the book. Uh, We'll get to that in a second. Uh, But but first, I wanted to, I guess, just ask you uh, kind of the history behind the book and and what led you to write the book. Sure, no, that's a great question. And that's something that also came up the apps around table, so it's a great preview. Yeah, th- this this book began uh, actually during the 0809 financial crisis. So it was a time when I was studying for my general exams, but also more importantly, it was a time when people were worried in a way they hadn't been for at least a decade over the possibility of American decline. And as these concerns over American decline were being bandied about in the public space, there was this underlying concern that if the U.S. declined, then other great powers, such as China or some other rising state, might try to challenge and undercut the United States' position. In other words, make American decline worse. But in fact, there was relatively little research that specifically examined what rising states do when faced with a declining great power. There are a lot of discussions about it, but very little systematic research. And the more and more I dug into this, uh, and of course, my dissertation research, which really took off at, 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 during and after the financial crisis, there seemed to be some interesting variation. Yes, there are cases where relatively rising states challenge declining great powers. We can think of the U.S. challenging the Soviet Union at the end of the Cold War as an example, or uh, famously Athens challenging Sparta for dominance in ancient Greece. But there are also notable cases where rising states don't exploit. Uh, power shifts to their advantage in a way that's hostile to declining states. For example, Germany helped Austria-Hungary before World War I. Likewise, famously, the United States helped Great Britain. And as I discovered in the course of my dissertation and book research, in fact, the Soviet Union, when it was a rising state after World War II, tried to cooperate with the declining United Kingdom. So there was all this interesting variation that really motivated me to tear into the question of when and why do rising great powers challenge declining states, prey upon declining states, and when and why do they adopt less hostile, perhaps even cooperative policies, what I call supportive strategies in the book, towards declining great powers. That's fascinating. And one of the fascinating things that you just said was that um, I was really surprised when I was reading your book about the uh, overtures that the, the Soviet Union made to Great Britain after World War II. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. You know, I, I was as surprised as you were. You know, we, we, we ex-post, we as Americans and readers after the fact, 
have this image of the Soviet Union as kind of this predator, this aggressive, revisionist state after World War II. So I was prepared to do my research, finding all this evidence the Soviets uh, really wanted to push the declining United Kingdom to the brink and push it into the dustbin of history. And while indeed by the time the Cold War kicks off and reaches high gear in the late 1940s, we do indeed see the Soviets trying to get after Great Britain. But what's really interesting, what we're speaking to, is that for the first two to three years after World War II, the Soviets really, really, really wanted to cooperate with the United Kingdom. This wasn't altruism. It was because the Soviets had this image that a that the that an equally rising United States was going to go after the Soviet Union and Britain, which was one of the only other, probably the only other strong, capable state around in the aftermath of World War II, would be a useful ally or partner against the United States. So the Soviets, even as they're recovering and beginning to surge in the aftermath of the Second World War, see the United Kingdom as a useful partner against the Americans. And this catalyzes a number of Soviet overtures to the United Kingdom, including an up to an alliance offer in the winter of 1946-1947 that the British actually went pretty far in negotiating and feeling out with the Soviets. That's amazing. That's amazing. It was fascinating. It was fascinating. So, so it, that is the, your primary case study in in the book is is this post war uh, Great Britain and the rising states of the U.S. and the USSR. Could you tell us a little bit about that dynamic and what you saw with your research? Sure. So, so the, the, the case of Britain's decline and the American and Soviet efforts to react to Britain's decline, uh, those cases are, are one of the two primary declining sets I look at. I also look at the case of American policy towards the Soviet Union in the late Cold War when the Soviet Union began to decline. But turning to the early post-war period, what, what, what I found uh, it's actually strikingly similar policies between the U.S. and the Soviet Union vis-a-vis the United Kingdom. What, what, what's incredibly interesting is in the immediate post-war world, the United States, while friendly towards Britain, had a somewhat hands-off, keep Britain at arms length policy for complicated reasons that I can speak to. But a very large part of it was concerned that the British were going to be a problematic partner while they had, while they looked likely to recover after the Second World War. So this, this led the United States to be friendly, but not too friendly towards the United Kingdom. And what's amazing, at least to my read, and I write about this in the book, is how similar Soviet policies were at that particular moment in time. This paradoxically, even as Britain is becoming materially and in relative power terms comparatively weak, it actually puts Britain in a privileged position where it can play, where it seeks to extract goodies, geostrategic political goodies from both the Americans and the Soviets. And this process, this ability of Britain to have good relations with the Soviets and the Americans, only really ends when Britain decisively swings into the American camp in 1947-1948. Interesting. So the, this uh, this case study, how do you extrapolate, and you, you have a theory called predation theory. Um, how do you, uh, could you explain a little bit about predation theory? Sure. I, uh, predation theory is, um, it, it's an argument that tries to explain when and why rising, relatively rising states, states experiencing a beneficial power shift, a shift in their favor, uh, prey upon or support with, to varying degrees declining great powers. And the basic argument is that the more strategic 
exactly valuable the declining state is to a rising state. That is, the more there are other great powers around, the more a declining state is geographically in a good place to help against another great power, the more a rising sta- uh, declining state looks like it may be able to be made uh, great again, to borrow from uh, the Donald Trump administration, and a host of other, and the more politically available the declining state is as a partner, the more likely a rising state is to try to keep the declining state around as a member of the great power ranks. And of course, within that, the less militarily threatening a declining state is, the more likely, the more intensive a rising state support under those conditions. On the flip side, the less strategically valuable a declining state is, that is, if there aren't other great powers around, or it's not a good geopolitical position, so on and so forth, the more likely a rising state is to prey upon it, that is, try to push it down or from the great power ranks. And here, when a declining state is militarily weak and vulnerable, that's when you're going to see rising states really go after uh, a declining state in full force over the jugular and try to quickly push it down or from the great power ranks. Interesting. Well, I mean, the, the first thing that comes to mind, um, bringing predation theory to the, the current situation, is that right. I don't know, since, since the glory years of the 50s and 60s, there's been a lot of hand-wringing in the United States about the decline of the American empire, the decline of the United States uh, in the world arena, uh, and the rising status of China. Um, what, what is your thought, and how would you apply predation theory to our current situation in the United States? Sure. Well, so, so you, you're, you're flagging an important point, which I guess I should have spoken to uh, when framing how I came to this project. You know, the United States has had bouts of declinism, fears that it was losing out relative to some other country, uh, basically every decade throughout history. In the 50s and the 60s, it was the Soviets. In the 70s and the 80s, it was the Japanese. And since the 90s, the post-Cold War world, it's been the Chinese. And so to, my theory helps explain when and why those rising states, if indeed they are rising states, uh, are likely to prey upon or support the United States. Given uh, its given American strategic value and what I call its military posture, its military uh, capabilities, and so to apply to the current world, I, I, I guess I'm a, I, I guess the point to say there is I'm actually more optimistic than many people who think China is going to be an inveterate predator or kind of become the second coming of Wilhelmine Germany uh, and try to push the United States quickly from the great power ranks. In fact, my argument would be the more China, and and this is where we need additional research, the more China thinks that it has other major powers on it uh, in its near abroad or in the geopolitical arena that China needs to offset, the more likely the Chinese are to see the United States as a potential partner against these other threats. In the 1990s, for example, we saw echoes of this when China was some, was one of the biggest proponents of keeping the, the United States in East Asia to uh, keep the cork in the Japanese bottle was the term of art. And now, if China thinks Japan is still a threat, if it sees India as a challenge, perhaps even Russia as a challenge, then China may be a little more inclined to see the United States as having strategic value and to cooperate or support the United States greater than might seem apparent at first blush. Conversely, uh, if China continues to grow and it comes to see the United States as the only uh, impediment to future Chinese hegemony dominant in East Asia or beyond, then that's a situation where the United States needs to be concerned 
over Chinese predation. But at the same time, that's also a situation where American military capabilities and the ability of the United States to protect its core interests in East Asia or elsewhere uh, should be able to keep Chinese predation in check, keep it limited, as opposed to this intensive effort to push the United States out of the great powers. Well, that that's that's thank you for that optimistic appraisal. I mean, there's so much, uh, as I was saying earlier, hand wringing and fear about this. It's it's good to hear a more positive future outlook uh, using your theory. Um, was this? I assume was one of the topics. Uh, China and the United States was one of the topics at the APSA roundtable discussion of your book. Is is that true? Yeah, it, it came up at several junctures, and what people seem to be really interested in doing was taking the theory and applying it to other cases. So not just the post-war cases that I talk about most directly in the book, but even further afield cases like the decline of Sweden in the 17th century or the decline of the Ottoman Empire in the 18th or 19th centuries, and to also apply it to current policy issues. In fact, people uh, asked me point blank whether this was a theory about rising or declining states or about great power politics in general. And I'm not totally comfortable at this point in time, since the book doesn't address this, saying that it's a general theory of great power politics, but I think some of the arguments do indeed travel to explain a wide swath of diplomatic history and current politics, perhaps. Nice. Um, were, what were some of the, the highlights of the APSA discussion? What were some of the things that were most memorable in the roundtable discussion of your book? Oh, gosh. Um, well, you know, I, I could frame that as either what were some of the things people said nice about me or what were some of the critiques. <laughs> and uh, maybe I'll do a little bit of both with, and I feel awkward praising my, you know, relaying what others said nicely, so what, what nice things others said about my project. Um, people really thought I did a good job tracking the history and showing how to do qualitative uh, archive, uh, qualitative research using a lot of archives, but also laying out alternate arguments and showing how my argument intersects and diverges from them and then testing the arguments accordingly. They, some people said it was a really uh, novel and diligent research design. that really pushed the envelope and showed what good qualitative research could be. So that was all very good. People also praised it history itself is really revising our understanding of key moments in post-war great power politics, which, you know, as someone who played in a ton of archives to make this project happen, really made me happy. Uh, Tongue-in-cheek, uh, one of the discussants, Kyle Lasseret of uh, Lewis and Clark College, pointed out that, uh, that uh, I and Sergei Lavrov, uh, the Russian foreign minister, might actually be the only two people who think the United States exploited the Soviets at the end of the Cold War. Which I'm not really sure how comfortable I am with that association, but if it challenges our understandings and pushes the conversation, I'm really pleased. So that was all a lot of fun. And as I said, people also appreciated that the project uh, took a very hard swing at this very thorny topic of what do rising states do, pointed out this interesting variation, noted uh, some conditions under which rising states prey upon or support declining states, and really pushed the conversation forward, pushed our theories forward of what rising states do, when, and why. The flip side of it is, of course, that they did make pointed critiques. They pointed out that some of the categories in which, some of the ways in which I typologize rising state strategies uh, could be further refined. They pointed out that there is a, not necessarily a tension, but there is some kind of something unsatisfying or off-putting about developing a highly 
short little theory of international politics, yet applying it in fairly short time frames. People also wanted, and I hinted at this a few minutes ago, that I look at additional cases beyond just the post-war cases in the book, although, to be fair, they acknowledge, and I should note, that I do indeed talk about uh, rise and decline in 19th century Europe uh, into the run-up before World War One, but they still wanted other cases, really full-bore periods of what of multipolar, mini-grid power politics. So they pushed me usefully on the theory, they pushed me usefully on some of the empirics, they praised the empirics, they praised the question, praised the existing theory, and overall it was a great start to what I hope to be a bigger conversation about rising great powers and when and why they react as they do to declining states and their own relative rise. Exactly. That's a great way of framing it. I mean, this is a preview of uh, the, the uh, response that you'll get from colleagues and peers uh, in the review process. We've sent the book out to uh, all the top journals and uh, um, academic outlets uh, that we can, and we look forward to seeing the reviews coming in. And, oh, I look forward to that as well. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. Um, so thanks again for coming on the podcast and explaining the book and telling us about your experiences at APSA. Um, and yes, congratulations again on your new book, Rising Titans and Falling Giants. Oh, thank you so, so much. And, you know, really thank you and thank everyone else uh, at the Roundtable and Beyond for taking the time to engage it. I, I really hope this starts a conversation. I believe it will. I believe it will. So thank you so much, Josh. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. All right. Take care. Take care now. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye-bye. That was Josh Schifferson, author of the new book, Rising Titans, Falling Giants, How Great Powers Exploit Power Shifts. As a loyal listener to the podcast, we would like to offer you a special 30% discount to purchase Josh's new book on our website. Please visit us at cornellpress.cornell.edu and use the promotion code 09POD at checkout. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.